You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening, everyone. My name is uh, Andrew Hunter. I'm the Frederick S. Eaton Curator of Canadian Art at the Art Gallery of Ontario and would like to welcome you all here this evening uh, for the, the conversation. Um, before I introduce uh, three guests, uh, this is the first day of Greg Stott's uh, residency here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. So Greg is... Thank you much. <laughs> ...is with us for how long, Greg? Greg, how long are you with us for? Till December 5th. December the 5th. So, very excited about this, uh, to have Greg here um, as part of our Artist in Residence program, and uh, I'll actually be working a fair bit with Greg. So, uh, normally, I was engaged with the artists that are here in residency, but this is a particular residency uh, where I'll be uh, a lot more engaged than in, in others. Um, I was thinking about this morning when I was first, you know, aware of Greg and his work, and I... And I sent Greg a text. It was like, when were you with Nipa? When did you show in Hamilton with Nipa? Uh, so Nipa was the Native Indian Inuit Photographers Association that was connected with the Hamilton Artist Inc. Uh, had a space on James North that they used to share. And uh, so I think I first was aware of Greg's work in the mid-'80s when he was, uh, his work was shown in Hamilton and I was a student, uh, and then reconnected with the work in the early-'90s when I ran the Hamilton Artist Inc. and Nipa was around and being run by Yvonne Maracle. And um, so Greg's work has always been very, uh, for somebody interested in curating in Canadian art, Greg's work has always been very present, um, a very um, conceptually rigorous and thoughtful presence uh, in the Canadian art world. So uh, coming to the AGO a year and a half ago, Greg was uh, one of the people sort of in my mind of uh, somebody to engage uh, sooner than later. And uh, Greg was doing a residency uh, with Trinity Square, was that where it was? Yeah. And so we connected there and started the conversation that sort of led over time to some conversations internally here at the AGO about inviting Greg in to be part of the residency program. And Greg, uh, in the residency, was dealing, uh, as he'll talk tonight, about one of the things he was dealing a lot with was the condolence ceremony, which is not something I'll speak about at length because I don't know. I'm still being introduced to it. Um, but what emerged in our conversations was the idea of what could an institution like the Art Gallery of Ontario learn through working with Greg and learn from the condolence ceremony. Um, and so the beginning point of our residency are conversations about Indigenous knowledge, how Indigenous knowledge can impact a change within an institution like the AGO and how it thinks generally, but also how it deals with Indigenous uh, works with Indigenous artists, deals with Indigenous history, um, raises an Indigenous presence within the institution. Um, so those are really important issues, uh, not just in the Canadian department, but within the institution at large. So some of what's going to be discussed tonight certainly will we'll touch on that. Um, the other thing that we're going to be talking a lot about over the course of the residency, and it will be public, it will be uh, online, it will be done through a blog and other projects, is to think about how do things come into 
the AGO? How are they cared for? How are they, um, how are they displayed? How are they kept track of? And this is something that Greg wants to explore and that will be part of our, our public dialogue as well. So again, I'm really thrilled uh, that, to have Greg here at AGO and to have this uh, conversation this evening be the launch of uh, uh, Greg's residency here. So I'm going to introduce uh, our uh, three guests, well, two guests plus Greg. So um, uh, I'm going to begin on the right with Dr. Uh, Jolene Rickard, uh, who's Tuscarora Associate Professor, uh, Director of the American Indian Program at Cornell University. Uh, is a visual historian, artist, curator, who's interested in issues of indigeneity within a global context. She is a 2010-11 uh, recipient of the Cornell University Society of the Humanities Fellowship on the thematic topic of global aesthetics. Rickard is on the board of the New York State Historical Association and a member of the College Art Association, Native Art Association, and the Society for Photographic Educators. She is also a founding board member of the Otsego Institute of Native American Art History. Her photographic installations have been exhibited internationally. Rickard co-curated two of the four permanent exhibitions for the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian in 2004 and co-curated across borders beadwork in Iroquois life 1999 to 2002. So welcome, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, to her right and my left uh, is R uh, Rick Hill Sr., also Tuscarora of the, uh, of the Beaver Clan. He is the former special assistant to the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. He is a professor of American history, an artist, a photographer, and a leading authority on contemporary Native American art and indigenous images depicted in multimedia. Hill was the museum director and principal designer of the new Institute of American Indian Arts and museum director for the Native American Center for the Living Arts. Rick is currently the senior project coordinator for Deo Hohage, uh, which is translated as the Indigenous Knowledge Center, located on the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. Um, the term Deo Hohage uh, embraces the concept of two streams of knowledge, Indigenous and Western, coming together in order to advance human understanding of the world around us. So Rick Hill. And then Greg Stotts, a Toronto artist who works in photography, performance, video, installation and sculpture. He is our artist in residence in October through December. His current work is engaged in an ongoing process of reconnecting with a traditional Haudenosaunee restorative aesthetic. This aesthetic related to condolence ceremonies occurring after the death of a title holder or community member relies on the shared repetitive experience of trauma and renewal. Stott's practice uses language, mnemonics, and the natural world to reconnect with his cultural history. So after the, the conversation and presentation, we're actually going to take folks up into the Canadian galleries to see a new installation project by Greg, which launches his residency with us. So, over to you, Greg. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for coming, everybody. I just wanted to uh, thank Jolene and Rick as well for being here. And uh, I've always wanted to have a, you know, a, a more in-depth conversations. And it's uh, it's nice that we can 
do this in a public and sharing the information because it's you know sharing comes from compassion and it's part of uh, part of what we do uh, as Haudenosaunee. I also wish to acknowledge those those elders who have maintained our traditions so that those of my generation can understand the importance of the great peace. And um, and also too, I wanted to acknowledge the uh, Anishinaabe elders that I <clears throat> that were quite instrumental when I was younger, when I first moved here, and um, Art Solomon and, and Gladys Kidd. So I just wanted to uh, thank, give thanks to them. So what I wanted to talk about tonight is um, is um, the fundamental methodologies of 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 the great law of peace and and what what that means and what I've been doing with my work. I'm not going to show too much too many images, but what we're going to do is we're going to talk about reciprocity, self-reflection and I think, you know, and how where that comes from. So I'd like to talk about uh, in the conversation of of where where these concepts come from not only the language, but also the creation story um, and other relationships. So, um, when I was younger, my, um, my great-grandma, or my great-aunt took a lot of photographs. And recently, I, I have acquired more, um, more of a family archive from my grandfather. And, uh, Diaries from 1937 till 67, <coughs> but it, the photographs themselves are also objects, and uh, in terms of uh, objects that you can hold, that you can you can you can pass from one to another, and uh, I wanted to ask you start off the conversation by by talking about mnemonics, and um, from the from the standpoint of, of the actual photograph itself. No, thank you. <laughs> no, Julian, you can go. <coughs> um, sorry about that. Um, no, thank you. I, I need you to say a little bit more about that, Greg, before I can launch into it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, well, the, the mnemonics I was talking to, talking about, were where the uh, where this was this mnemonic here uh, from the condolence ceremony. So, in terms of a pictorial uh, aspect of of a continuum, uh, and it's specifically this mnemonic, which represents. Uh, Excuse the errors of sequence, which, uh, which when the uh, original words were spoken. Just in terms of like uh, uh, family photographs and portraits and photographs of place, it, it's in my in my um, in my. Um, Research. It's been, you know, it's there is a the title holders had their names were given, uh, describing either their state of mind or their their uh, the place where they met the the the, um, 
the peacemaker. <clears throat> well, uh, I'll take a, I guess I can try to address this. And uh, since we began this discussion and I had the opportunity to spend a little time with you uh, and thinking about your work, um, it certainly opened up for me a number of uh, questions. And so one of the things that I'm perhaps sensitive to is uh, thinking about a broader context for where this is situated. In that there's the question of like a very specific cultural knowledge that is communicated to a very specific group of people. Mm -hmm. And then there's the question of how do we respond to uh, the knowledge of a system that's, codifi or that's codified as a, as a visual system, but that's linked to an oral history that has been identified by you know, the anthropological frame as something that's a mnemonic. Mm -hmm. And so um, lately, one of the exercises I've been putting myself through is that do we really want to use that term? Is that term actually uh, the expression that we want to use to capture what that experience is? Mnemonic. The, the term mnemonic, mm -hmm. right. And so I almost think that just the terminology is a little too clinical to actually embrace the broader uh, understanding, which I think I'll leave that to Rick to actually contextualize. And so I struggle with the issue of how so many of these words that describe the culture we're trying to engage are deficient. Mm -hmm. and, and so this idea that something is, um, you know, so I, I might just leave it there as a first comment. Yeah, and, yeah I understand, yeah. And take it. <clears throat> Let, Maybe let the conversation flow a bit. It was in the uh, 17th century when uh, one of the Jesuits wrote of our ancestors. He said that uh, we think in metaphorical terms. And if you don't understand the metaphor, you're never going to understand what they're talking about. And I think it's still true today that uh, this um, idea of taking a big idea, a big conceptual idea, a spiritual idea, a grand historical idea, and bringing it down into a word or a phrase, which you have to understand in the Mohawk language, that one word is constructed, it can be quite long, because it, ex it explains everything about the core thing. So if we had it in our language, to, that, the best way to think about it is that when you're talking in English, it's like you're watching a, uh, a black and white TV from 1950. I remember that, I was there. Uh, and it's kind of, you can kind of see it, but it's kind of fuzzy and doesn't have much depth. But to think in the Mohawk language or Tuscarora or any of our languages is to like be in the middle of a surround sound, technicolor, three-dimensional movie that you are explaining as we're talking. You're describing the physicality of it all. And so we don't need a word for a computer, but we describe what it does. And so the next time Greg talks to somebody, he can say, well, this is the way they describe that. So really what we do, we're communicating these mental images that were created. So we have a cultural metaphor, and we have this mental image. So when it comes to designs uh, like this, 
something is put together quite uh, uh, succinctly to represent these big ideas. And in this case here, how our, um, our nations are divided uh, uh, in order to help one another. So uh, the younger brothers sit on one side, uh, which are the Kyrgyz, the Oneidas, and the Tuscaroras, and the elder brothers sit on the other side, which are the Onondagas, the Mohawks, and the Senecas, because we're meant to help one another, uh, particularly during grieving. So this is why I think this, uh, the, the way they capsulize this cultural metaphor and this uh, mental uh, image of ourselves is the core that I believe drives most Haudenosaunee art, even to the point where some of the contemporary artists don't quite understand what they're doing, but they've inherited the sense that this is how the visualization of our cultural uh, metaphor uh, works. At the same time, we're creating new cultural metaphors that I, I guarantee if this art gallery stands uh, long enough, our great-grandchildren will be here talking about the mnemonics of, of uh, the artists of uh, today. I kind of agree with Jolene because nobody in the community talks about mnemonics, uh, but what they do talk about is the uh, idea, uh, the concept, but it gets demonstrated so often you don't need to talk about it or describe it. So it's almost like the further you get away from the practice, the more difficult it is to comprehend it because most of the practice is described by anthropologists, not uh, art uh, historians. So we're trying to try to, uh, how do you want to say it? Decontextualize the way in which scholars have uh, put together uh, a thinking about our consciousness and we have to reach in and recapture that. So we represent a generation or two of uh, people who are trying to recover, I don't want to call it hidden knowledge, but that knowledge which was um, kind of packed away for safety purposes. Now it's coming back out. Whereas I dare say nobody would have wrestled with this topic in art, particularly here in an art gallery, 30, 40 years ago, it would have been considered too, um, too culturally sensitive. Uh, but as the artists are bringing forth these things, it's kind of like presenting a mirror to our people. We have to talk about this because look at our people. So in many ways, maybe the visual artists will lead a, I don't want to call it a cultural revolution, but a new way of applying the culture to, re to meet real human needs, in, not only in our community, but I believe in your community. Yeah, I have, you know, I've been living in, in Toronto since 85 and, and I have, I grew up outside of the Longhouse and, uh, but I did have a, um, my mother was the librarian when I was younger, so I did get a chance to, we, we've, she interviewed quite a few people and uh, both um, conservative Longhouse and, and Christian families as well. So and she recorded them, and so it gave me an it gave me a, a window into a living, what it was. But uh, I think that I have not been participating, and that's one of the things in terms of knowledge. Uh, one of the method methods of of uh, acquiring knowledge is participating, witnessing, listening. You know. Um, <coughs> in the culture itself so I have I too have inherited these these this uh, nomenclature of, of, of mnemonic and but it but it's true Rick it was like I'll be doing work and I'll be making something and I'm like I'm drawn to a certain thing 
and subconsciously I know what it is, or I know that I'm being drawn to it. It's almost like a, it's like, this is why I'm photographing, this is what I'm interested in. And, and, and then it'll present itself in, in a text through, through the great, one of the great law texts yeah. or, you know, or something about voice or, you know, uh, place. And so a lot of the photographs I've been taking have been on Six Nations where I grew up. So that sort of, that place for me uh, is, is, my, is the site and uh, of where, where not only my identity but my memory lays. So what, the one person who was quite instrumental as well was Jake Thomas when I grew up on the reserve because it was a sort of a, I remember what he said, he used to say that if we didn't start learning and teaching ourselves and each other the traditions that non-native people would be teaching it to us at some point. And, um, and he started the Jake Thomas Learning Center. I remember when I was younger, when it was when he was quite controversial within the Longhouse, and and you know, in terms of the knowledge that he was sharing. So, I think as Rick says, there's there's more of us who are doing looking at these um, these methodologies and these ideas and concepts, and. I mean, when people read some of my artist statements, they're like, oh, this is pretty wordy, or it's... But it's like, it's that struggle for me to rationalize metaphors and to explain how, how uh, complex the concept is. It's almost in, in, in 80 words or less, you know, or whatever. I mean. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think that the fact where I'm at now with my work is, is you know... The photographs and, and these. This is from where I grew up on Six Nations, the trees, and, and my grandmother had these chairs for visitors and prayer meetings. And but th these images are a reflection of the objects, but also they're reflecting back on themselves too. And I'm I'm trying to get towards that. And in in the coming months, I'm going to be talking to more language keepers and talk, seeing how the language actually, how that happens, how the reflection happens um, f from language. Because I think one of the, th the, you know, it's always been important for me to have, a, have my photographs reflect where, I, where I'm from and who, from a personal standpoint, and then when I find out that the reflection of a, of the bowl of the you know the bowl through the through the hole that was it Hiawatha you know the self reflection the whole idea of self reflection is within the within the uh, the, the story of the peacemaker maybe you could talk about that too well you know what I was thinking of though is uh, we're actually from several different places mm -hmm. you know I mean there's always a our ancestral community, like uh, Jolene and I being uh, Tuscaroras, we uh, went down to North Carolina. That's where our ancestors were originally from. Um, what was it, last year? I think uh, it's the anniversary of this big event down there. So uh, and I had a whole bunch of people going down on these buses, and I remember it's really, it was quite a mental and emotional journey, going back to the homeland that we mm -hmm. never, we don't live there, and we don't have much affinity with. Uh, but now Tuscarora uh, in uh, New York and the Tuscaroras that came from Grand River. So we have ancestral place that we have this connection to. And then we have the place where our um, 
for several generations, we said we've uh, lived. Uh, but then even living in a community, you can have such a variety of experiences from the real hardcore traditional to the totally assimilated. And that to me creates another place, a mental place within the, within the place. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I see your photographs, I think about that. I, I have similar experiences. I mean, I think I, when I wrote, uh, I wrote an essay for an exhibit you had in the, the uh, McMaster Art Gallery is that I could see the places he's talking about, see the same kind of things that I think that we all see, but also even though I don't know the story of the chair, there's a chair in my story. There's, a, there's places like that in my story, and that's because uh, not only did his mother used to help take care of my uh, grandmother. I, I've known Greg ever since he's just a little brat. Um, so uh, we have this shared story, even though I don't know your particular narrative. Uh, and at the same time, this big complex story, which underlies it all, the creation story in a great piece, I like to believe, maybe I'm a little wacky, you know, but I like to believe that that, that knowledge exists forever in these places. Hmm. So when you get connected to place, there is no textbook, you know, there is no ultimate DVD. It's just connecting to place and the place, I'm an old hippie, the place vibrates with this energy and you absorb it and you become part of it. So I think that's the, heat, the ultimate healing nature of the earth, mm -hmm. is that it sends this vibrational energy out to people who are trying to pay attention, and then it begins to steer your thinking. You still have a conscious mind to go through that, but I believe that's what's going on, particularly with this uh, set of photographs. I mean, to address the question of place, uh, my experience with the uh, return of the Tuscarora to one of to our homeland is this: is that at Tuscarora the culture program, uh, which started about 20 years ago, um, within the past 10 years, has been meeting every Tuesday night uh, to work through uh, the history of the Tuscarora because we don't have the essential sort of Tuscarora text that's been written from our perspective. And we collect these articles and we debate them, et cetera. Sometimes I participate by Skype. Sometimes I actually get to be there in person. And <clears throat> one of the things that uh, we've come to is that we feel that we began our journey here uh, with the other five nations. And it was at a time uh, before the five nations actually understood they were distinct uh, families. And so I get this from uh, one of the uh, discussions that we had with Tom Porter because the community at Tuscarora and Western right now is going through this really very, uh, very succinct and thorough process of trying to reclaim uh, the ceremonies uh, so that we can actually um, uh, bring the fire or the longhouse to Tuscarora. And so we invite speakers from different longhouses and to come and talk with us about their uh, perspective. And so one of the things that Tom Porter shared is that there was a time in the Confederacy before uh, the actual place names were succinctly identified as Onondaga, Oneida, etc., Mohawk, Yuga. And I began thinking about this in relationship to that last image that you showed where there's only five marks on there, so then where are the Tuscarora? And so 
the story that we look at is a story that is about um, the great the great vine, which is a story that talks about our crossing of this great river through a vine uh, with a technology of a vine bridge. And so in other indigenous communities around the world, people are still making vine bridges. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that we went from the northern territories through what today we think of as the Ohio River Valley, that uh, we spent a thousand years in North Carolina and then we were forcibly displaced to still remain intact as a community, I think, forms a certain character of the Tuscarora, the northern Tuscarora today, because we had every opportunity to disband and not stay together as a community. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that I think I'm still focused on. <clears throat> and so this journey, this cycle of the return, this idea of the cyclical return, I think was profound for uh, our community. And I think it works in conjunction with the um, consciousness of the people to want to mark the uh, uh, acknowledgement of these great teachings through the longhouse. Mm -hmm. And so that's a process that's in place right now in uh, Tuscarora uh, in Western New York. The, um, this idea that we're a broad diaspora is something that has not been fully uh, discussed within our communities because they're, uh, you know, so I guess one of the things that I think about is how, yes, we do have a land base that we identify as a nation territory or some people refer to it as a reservation, but I'd like to think that we're at that moment or precipice where our experiences extend beyond those boundaries and that we take ownership of the entire territory. Mm -hmm. And so I was struck by something uh, last week at um, uh, a, a seminar that I've been invited to participate in at Columbia University on an analysis of the UN uh, Declaration of Indigenous Rights in conjunction with the meeting at ALTA and then the follow-up conference, the World Conference on Indigenous People that just took place this past September. And it was actually Tanya Ganella Frischner who is um, uh, on a DAGA and she served as the special rapporteur uh, to the UN uh, for North America uh, uh, she was the previous one, so I'm not sure ex actually when her term ended. But um, she points out that our territory, and she described it as all the way to Georgia, to the um, Mississippi River Valley, to the West Coast, or to the um, Eastern Seaboard. And we were in New York, and she was making this point. And, it, and today, sometimes we get into this idea that our territories are only defined by these colonial borders. Mm -hmm. And then she talked from New Brunswick on the northern edge. And so she created this really wide swath. And I talked with her about that afterwards. I said, you know, that, that wasn't the kind of marker that I was thinking about in terms of Haudenosaunee territories. And she defended the point and said that 
you know, that this is the way that we need to begin to really rethink our relationship to place. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to accept that because I think that we need new definitions for how we mark the lands that were not given to us, but that we, in a sense, negotiated for or lost, you know, lost the lives of our ancestors for. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I think this question of place and then certainly the melancholia that's in your work, I think, speaks to this unresolved question mm -hmm. about our vexed relationship to this, on the one hand, a celebratory fact that we survived, you know, Visner's notion of survivance, but on the other hand, you know, mm -hmm. what, what it could have been. And I'll just make one more comment that Years ago, I'm driving through um, Route 81, which is the Onondaga Territories, and um, I'm with Jeannie Shenandoah, and she said, look at this valley, Jolene. She said, sometimes it hurts to have to face it every day to think that at one point in time, it was ours. And now, I can't, it, now I want, you know, it's just this sort of like little dot that we get to claim in this way. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be something in how we rethink that space. Yeah, it's like a, it's a notion, a, negoti a renegotiation of trauma as well, because it's that, it's that, um, that dis, dis, you know, being dislodged from that place psychologically and physically but still having it present. It's uh, in, in certain, certain therapies that's, uh, you know, I was told once that uh, uh, the men melancholia can come from the, from the thing that, uh, that is present, but that you've, you've missed in your, in, uh, in, 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 uh, your ancestors or you missed your, in your childhood. And it's there and you have it now, but it's, it can be also a, uh, a reminder of what you've lost mm -hmm. or of what you, that trauma. And there's something about the work that I do and because and, I've always been hypervigilant. <laughs> and uh, so I've also, you know, I've always worked in series, but I think that what I'm drawn to is that sort of those enigmatic images that, that can evoke that something bad could happen or has happened. And um, so, but it, and, you know, but it, so when I got to do the the work with the condolence ceremony, um, and specifically this one as well. Well, let, well, let me just go forward a bit here. Um, when I got to this image here of of um, of Tashina General, who was. Murdered on my reserve and found her body was found where my mother used to live. Um, I wanted to. I took the the image from the the internet. I found the found image and in my. I wanted to have the words of the condolence ceremony affect the image itself and, and that's what I did. I opened it up. I opened up the image and, and inserted, embedded the, some of the, uh, some of the, some of the, um, the phrases that I had chosen 
previously and have been working with for quite a while into the image. So that, you know, that was, was one way that visually I wanted to have that to make it, to make it a visual thing without, uh, without, um, without language. So, um, but don't you, <clears throat> I know that this isn't, um, a language in the alphabetic sense, but I mean, I think that photography has a vocabulary mm -hmm. that you're certainly cognizant, certainly working with. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. But I think there's another thing. You kind of talked about the family image because everybody knew her, and I worked with her grandmother quite a bit, uh, trying to do healing. But one of the problems when you suffer such a uh, hard um, trauma is that sometimes even the old things uh, don't work because the trauma is so uh, so deep. If you one way to read our culture, if you go back to the creation story, the whole reason we exist here is in order to um, uplift the burden of um, grief caused by uh, death of a loved one. That's why the whole world was created. And you look at our culture, it's all to bring people back up. So in this condolence he's talking about, which is a ceremony in which we, uh, we uh, uh, lay to rest an old chief who died and, and lift the mind of his family up so we can stand up another chief. So it's a, they call it this requickening by bringing back. But on the, in the part of that, as they're going through the woods to the place where they're going to meet the grieving family, they sing this song. It's more like an intoned chant. And what it says basically is, we're walking along, we've got tears in our eyes, but we're gathering up the bones of all of our relatives, the old people who knew this. Really, they knew it really well. We don't know it very well. And so have pity on us as we gather them up. So to me, that kind of goes back to uh, answering the one question about place. Where's, where is our place? It's where the bones of our ancestors are buried because they, again, create this vibrational energy with the earth and, and, and we're connected to them. But that song about doing that, and then what it says is, we're going to gather up all the bones, we're going to kind of lovingly clean them up, uh, bundle them back up, put them back in the ground, and cover it over with earth so that the sun and the rain won't get to them anymore and they will finally live in peace. And then we go on to the ceremony. So, and I've participated in this and for a lot of reasons, uh, part of it works because you want it to work, but the real grieving part, I had a brother who was killed in a car wreck when I was uh, 20 years old and then four years later, one of my, my daughter died when she was 10 days old. And I started on this journey of trying to figure out wh why this happens uh, what's happening to me and what do you do about it? And I went everywhere. You know, I went to the, my grandma's church and I even went to a synagogue in Mount Buffalo and talked to the rabbis. I talked to everybody about death, life, and spirit. But it wasn't until I heard the words of this condolence ceremony, even in English, it was the first time I felt somebody is paying attention to what's going on inside of me. Somebody had some words that could reach into me and make me understand this is the way it happens. So sometimes when I see these uh, old uh, family photos, it kicks off all of those memories, not only the loving memories of, uh, of the people that you care about, but also the, the, the trauma. But it's not meant to freeze us in that past moment mm -hmm. it's because of our culture says, okay, <laughs> put, the, put the trauma to rest and now move forward. And maybe this is why the, um, the photograph has this uh, 
this strange, enduring uh, power. You know, I actually went to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago to study photography, and I remember one of the, the photographs almost becomes ultra-precious because of its size. A big painting, big sculpture, but all of a sudden you're holding this thing, and because of its realness, it created a different kind of connection. So we can look at photographs of other people and reflect part of my own true life experience on there, but also to say, sometimes, I'm glad I'm not still like that anymore. I've kind of moved past that. So I think sometimes our work, even though it's, we're photographing other people, it's really trying to take an x-ray of ourselves. What's mm -hmm. going on inside of us? Mm -hmm. But because of that, because of your journey and all of ours, we have these momentary pauses in which we make art about that journey. And out of necessity, sometimes, if we do the right kind of healing, the, the photograph will change. A relationship to the photo will change. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so maybe that's the power of that particular kind of imagery. I don't know. I think that photo, if we'll go back to it for a moment, Greg, is very telling because I think it's emblematic of the condition of indigenous women in not only North America but the world in that the face is fractured and not in, not in focus. It is in a complete image. In some way, there's been a a kind of acknowledgement of uh, of this this sort of fractured status of indigenous women in our in our communities as well, because that happened. It was a rupture that happened in the community. Mm -hmm. It was community on community member assault, yeah, and so. <clears throat> and I think that you know your uh, I think you're speaking in this very what I would call this kind of modernist language in this kind of, but this geometric form, which signifies, I think, a certain Western construct at the same time, I think that if we look at the way in which the symbolic gesture of Haudenosaunee people, um, you know, initiated and then evolved, I think you're working within that palette as well. And so there's the emotional, issue, but then there's also the structural issue of this kind of work that I think is probably not dealt with as succinctly because, you, you know, who gets to read it, right? Very few people can read it from both perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is always an issue with um, indigenous work. It's that mm -hmm. unless you're deeply invested in the philosophical space of what that work is about, unless you understand the history, unless you have a broader context to actually read the work through beyond this idea of uh, early 20th century modernist abstract you know, mm -hmm. idea, which it could be very easy to locate that piece within. I think these are the complications of, of your work, mm -hmm. just as a, as a text, mm -hmm. as a piece. Yes. Well, could you describe how you made this piece? I think it's interesting. The technique. So I, what I did was actually I took, uh, I have 20 phrases that I've been working with from the condolence ceremony as well as, um, as, well as uh, parts of the report of, of how and where she was found and the lot number and concession number. So a lot of information was, was, in, was included and in, so I just opened it up in text edit, the actual JPEG from the internet and I opened it up in text edit source, and you can see the, all the you can see all mm -hmm. the uh, the coding, and then I just typed it in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I'm just going to read briefly the, the 20, the 20 uh, phrases. I've been working with these for since, like, I don't know, t 2008. So what I did was I looked at, just as I would, uh, you know, choose what to photograph, in intuitively I just chose these phrases. I suddenly became aware, approaching moving across barriers, wisdom that which, is, which did sustain our minds with teardrops falling as you came. Great thanks that now you have crossed the forest safely. Might have killed you, the water holes. Bodies are lying there. They will, they will kindle a fire for near the thorny bushes. There they will console them with the few words. You will look around calmly. Once more breathe peacefully, speaking out calmly. Passed his hands through his tears. Dreadful that it should happen to one. Even now I may go, I may fail going through the ceremony. Where submerged bushes tremble. We will place it on the wall of the house where the shadow falls. The rites we have performed, they will console them, gone to prepare a seat for you. So I, I, I put those, that words, those words into that text as well. And yeah, I think the, what were you saying before? <laughs> it was senior moment. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the problem was, was, is always with, with my presenting my work, I've, I basically, you know, uh, sent out uh, exhibitions and, and uh, did it myself. And then, you know, uh, approached galleries, regional artist-run centers, museums, and then I would bring in writers to, to write about from, from either side of that, of that dialogue. And uh, but yeah, it's it's there. There are those two, those two uh, conceptual, modern, and and uh, Haudenosaunee thought that that are still on either side of the and make it up that that make up my work. So now recently, I've did what I call methemes, and methemes are are uh, you know. I went back home and I photographed these methemes. Uh, the definition is, is um, you know, um, important moments in a narrative, and these narr these are from you know from at the edge of the woods. So my grandfather uh, and my father planted these pine trees. Um, you know, the roots of peace. So I've been doing this almost as a as a participant and a, an observer. Uh, within within the, the that narrative, so I've been coming a little closer to the to with the, with the landscape itself, and this is that was at Cortland, <laughs> you know, when, upstate New York when I went there for Iroquois conference, and and like Jolene was saying, there was such an I was so overwhelmed being there in that territory. There's a different feeling that you've you know this is where you. It's quite emotional to be, this is where you really belong, you know. Oh. And then, you know, this is, this to me is, well, this is my, my father's um, little shed that I, you know, that I photographed and it's, uh, he passed away in 1985. And, uh, but it, it, you know, the em it's emblematic of the fall, the first trauma of Sky Woman. And so going back home and, and doing these and finding these photographs, you know, and making these things, 
um, was quite was quite powerful for me as well, and I continue to do this as well. You see, but w what I think about is, well, what is the investment for someone who is not either trying to reproduce this culture or somebody who is, um, you know, uh, not um, particularly interested in indigenous thought or Haudenosaunee thought? What is the invest? What is what is at stake for them in in viewing this work? Is it just you know, uh, a shed with a hole in it. Right. And so, you know, to go back, to, I guess, so to go back to Rick's point about this issue of metaphor, you know, that, you know, the, you know, the contemplation of your work begins to reveal these metaphors. And I think that the challenge is that, you know, here's the culture that has been in this part of the world longer than anybody else, mm -hmm. you know, that, that we have access to today. And, not, and I'm not saying just the Haudenosaunee, but I'm saying indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think part of the decolonizing project of the Americas is to understand these metaphors, to understand this place, and that there's something in this contemplation for all of us, not mm -hmm. just for me as a Haudenosaunee person, mm -hmm. but for all of us in this shared space. You know, what does really the hole in the sky mean? Mm -hmm. You know, what does that metaphor really mean for all of us? You know, and so yes, we have our cultural prescription of it, but I think if we push on it even further, that there are really important things to actually learn from this that, you know, are, that are beyond uh, the narrative of the frame that we express it through. Mm -hmm. And so that's the potential, I think, to understanding indigenous work. And it's, and, and for me, what I see is that mo we're not there yet. I mean, the world is scrambling to understand Chinese art. And we under, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a big jump to understand why, you know, because it's about, you know, the capitalist state and that, you know, this is about the market. And so, you know, but here we have a potential, we, here we have an opportunity to really understand deep processes. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting that the Chinese don't have this as well, but it's about this part of the world. So I would think that there should be some kind of desire to actually do this together, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you think about the metaphor, uh, if we say that uh, the reason why this world was created because death came to the sky world, there's a hole that was made there by uprooting the tree of life, and then that woman fell from there down here bringing life into this world. And then after humans are created, the creator told him to walk down this path and tell me what you see. So they go down there, they reach the end of the path, and there's this hole in the ground. Next to it is this mound. And out of the mound are growing uh, these plants, corn beans and squash. And, and uh, so when it came back, they, uh, they told what that is. So in my mind, I don't know if this is the way it was intended, but this is what happens when you go to the university too long and you make too much art, you make things up. So that... Uh, uh, we are 
if, so lifestyle from up there where death was, down to this world, created life, and then we live our life, and then when we die, we go into the earth to get recycled back up there. So these two uh, thresholds are very important. Now, the problem is that, you know, I started studying the creation story in 1971. I heard about John Mohawk. And I have been wrestling with this thing all my adult life. What does it mean? Looking at Mohawk and Onondaga and Seneca and trying to understand that and the great law and all of this stuff. It's almost like I, I've read too much. I've talked too much about it. I want to experience it. So uh, despite what he said at the opening, uh, you know, Jolene's more knowledgeable about the contemporary art scene than I am because I kind of... I'm kind of a contemporary art hermit. I kind of left the scene about 12 years ago to move to Grand River because I wanted to say I spent time in my mother's community, I want to spend time where my dad's from, but I also wanted to work with the practitioners of the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, Grand River I had quite a bit. So I've had like a ultra Haudenosaunee graduate level education of working with these language uh, speakers. People actually put to the ceremony at the same time I bring the textual history and the mnemonic photographs uh, uh, to them and say, well, what about this? Let's, let's think, because sometimes they actually say things and they'll say it, but we don't know what that actually means. So what I'm able to do is conjecture back, said now based upon all this other evidence and all this other stuff and all this other art, maybe we can recontextualize its meaning. Otherwise, it'll be going like to a Catholic mass in Latin. Nobody knows what's going on. We have to understand what we're participating in. I push this a lot with my girls when they go to the longhouse. I say, you're not just going because it's fun, but you have, to, you have to think about this stuff, what it means to be in a great feather dance, what it means to go in these medicine ceremonies. And, um, and they're able to do it, but they will come up with their own sense of what it means to them. It might be a little different than what it means to the Onondagas or, or the, the Senecas or whatever, but capturing that meaning. So in many ways, you could say this is the interesting human dilemma. Um, because we always ask these big questions. Why are we here? How do we get here? You know, what are we supposed to do about it? I got these squirrels running around in my yard, you know, and I've never seen a gray squirrel sit there and agonize about his inner bear. His inner bear wants to come out. He says, is a squirrel? Uh, he can have fun with the black squirrels and even intermate with them, but he leaves the red squirrels alone because he knows his place in the world. So sometimes I think, do we still have a place in the world? Or is our ancestral thing so frayed, so covered over, and we've been so colonized that um, uh, it's impossible to recapture in time for whatever's happening to our people? So if you, so I get torn. I go to work one day, you know, and you read the paper and, and the high suicide rate among kids on the res, you know, and all this, all, all the, all the bad things uh, that we've inherited. And yet, if you stand in that ceremony, if you really understand what they're saying, you participate and you feel that action, to me, that's what make, that's the difference. So then you can package all that other crap up and just say, it doesn't matter. This matters. But because of the way we've become, we focus so much on the negative and re-victimize ourselves all the time. We don't realize the, the, you know, the liberating theology mm -hmm. of this, uh, this kind of material, that it will set you free but it's your responsibility to free yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you're, once you begin to realize that, it's yeah. just my thought that's been capturing me. These words that they have to uplift this. Because uh, when you think about it, all they say, what we're going to do is we're going to push those clouds back that are darkening your vision. Right? Mm -hmm. We're going to wipe your tears and darkening your vision. We're going we're to do all of that stuff to you. So even for one day, 
you'll be able to stand up and look at the world and understand your place in it. So that's you doing that. Mm -hmm. it's, no, it's not magic that they're doing for you, but we have those powerful words. And then when I see these people do that, that's what's amazing me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's out of the kindness of their heart they'll step up and do this because mm -hmm. they, they don't get paid to do it. They don't, there's nothing required of that. And that, to me, is what keeps our culture going, however it's going, is the people who actually uh, live it rather than um, agonize over it. So, the, so then people with language and without language, yes. those of us who, who, who don't have the language and the worldview. But I'd like to say uh, that I can uh, put myself up in this example, because I don't, I, don't, I don't think in Tuscarora. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've spent my whole uh, life pursuing these uh, ideas. Because mm -hmm. I hear this a lot from old people, uh, that uh, if we lose our language, we'll lose our culture. You can't understand a culture unless you um, speak the language. Mm -hmm. uh, well, being very Greg-like, I said, well, yeah? Tell me why. What can't you explain that's going on in your head? What can't you explain to me in the, in the language that uh, we grew up with, uh, English? So when I keep pushing people, and keep looking and examine the words and the language. Every time we're dealing with Mohawk, Onondaga, and Cuga language, and I see what they what they say, they think is true. But I can still comprehend the idea. Mm -hmm. I can't express it that same way. So I have some hope that uh, through this self therapy we call art, that we can <laughs> help to uh, remove this uh, burden of grief that's on us and the cloudy things that have happened to us in our life, and uh, liberate ourselves to live a, um, a whole, a more whole life, right? a, a real life. And it doesn't matter where you're living now, because when you look at our culture, that's what it's about. Find yeah. your place, yeah. follow your path, enjoy your gifts. <laughs> a lot of the work, well, uh, I showed this work was called Dark String uh, at the National Gallery and a, couple, a bunch of artist-run centers. And uh, it was the, the dark string wampum, and it was just a feedback. And this became almost like a, it became like a, a new aesthetic and a real, an, epif an epiphany for me that, that my work was not only self-reflective, but there was a feedback process. And when I was talking, at, when I was talking uh, to classes at Cornell, this sort of dawned on me that yes, I do have this reciprocity within my own practice and my methodology, and um, so it's. And when you find those concepts and those ideas in in the actual great law of peace, it it's so powerful for me to you know to to know that I'm continuing to do that. So, but I remember we talked about this, or we started to talk about this work. I think this work is a really difficult work to embrace. If you can go back to the, the just the image of the how it was installed, you know, when I encountered it, I was in a sense confounded. Like, what is it this artist Greg is trying to deal with? I understood the wampum. I understood the this idea of um, you know this. I've only ever experienced one condolence, but. Having had that experience brought me a little closer to it. But, um, but what I began thinking about is this question of experience in that it's, there's, um, 
there's a conversation going on in both the scientific community and the arts community, and I would say the arts and science community. And it, for me, it works in two, two ways. Uh, there's the scientific community that has come to the understanding of indeterminacy and has given it a number of theoretical idea, uh, constructs. But this idea that everything is in constant motion has been proven through their methodological techniques. And at the same time, there's a discussion going on in uh, the, the broader humanities community around uh, a reclaiming or re revisiting phenomenology, uh, visiting, re uh, visiting or thinking through again the work of uh, Merleau-Ponty and coming back to uh, questioning this idea of experience. And so it's interesting to me that at this juncture, these things are happening. That there's a kind of awakening or realization through whatever methodologies they've arrived at. That there's something that is uh, both animate and destabilizing in life itself. And so when I saw the feedback loop piece that you created, I began thinking about how it is actually through the experience of video, and if you could just move it to the video, this experience of video and light. And so this idea of light as being a central metaphor throughout Haudenosaunee culture, and that through this technology of representation through video and then the actual experience, even now, the experience of this idea of a shimmer, in a sense animates, again, a basic principle that's invested in the wampum. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought, I think there's something interesting in what you've intuited as a way of expressing this idea. And, and so this phrase that Rick used is that, you know, this idea that um, the knowledge is in the land, the knowledge is in the bones, that we can actually uh, feel this vibration in some way. And so I've been thinking about this piece as a, as a kind of contemporary vibration of this knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that's what began to communicate to me about this cycle, this loop. Because even though all of these things have happened in the world, this is what human beings made, right? It's of our making, right? This is part of what we imagined. And, and so if this is what you're imagining now with this, maybe it's a turn, right? Maybe mm -hmm. this becomes a kind of turn to, you know, to use, you know, as they say, I'm, I don't think I'm actually a hippie, but I could borrow this language. But this idea of this, this quest for expanding our consciousness, because that's, in my uh, observation, one of the only things that we need to do as human beings is to continue to expand our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's our consciousness that's actually been truncated not the traditions. Yeah. yeah, I was influenced by, you know, uh, a couple of artists from the 70s, 60s and 70s, um, 
mostly um, Steina, Vasulka, and uh, so a lot of I've been doing a lot of manipulation with analog, with um, with analog um, video, so not digital, not uh, you know. So I've been doing quite a bit of that, but yeah, there was that that energy that I wanted to have uh, and light and uh, and also the the concept of the feedback. Were those real Lampombees? Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, one time I, uh, when I saw the guy holding these uh, beads and he's reciting these uh, words, I asked him, how does that happen? And he said, um, you ever drive through a tunnel, there's lights well, flying by you? He says, that's what happens, because the word is captured in the bead. So when I hold it, the word comes to me. And so instead of lights going by, it's these phrases in light. Hmm. So, so basically, the one was saying, okay, say this, and now say this, and now say that. So he's got to really focus and concentrate on it when they're holding it. And so I've had to learn, I, I believe it's true. So that's what I saw when I saw this. I saw the, the, the word held in the bead uh, being uh, uh, recited, uh, being shared. But at the same time, knowing you, knowing about you, I saw you putting yourself into there. And mm -hmm. one end, and then especially with these... Uh, these things come in at the other end. It's very intriguing to me, these, yeah. these four things, whatever they are. So uh, how we will read this work depends on right, our level of comprehension about uh, our culture, our tradition, about art. So it can be read many different ways. Now, if you didn't hear any of this stuff and still walked in and saw this, you could still be confounded. You have the right to do that. And you can say, what does this mean? I don't get it. Uh, I don't understand it. That's OK, too. Uh, but at the same time, if I had seen this piece 40 years ago, I might not have uh, been able to comprehend it the way I did. I had to learn a whole lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why I think uh, sometimes the art is uh, advanced before its time, only because uh, people are so slow. So I did, just in closing, I wanted to, uh, to show a, a f my recent work that... Um, I've been doing, I start doing these installations where this, this word transmedial comes and uh, transmedial means it's to, uh, to explore different platforms of media because the narrative is so big <laughs> and that there's, there's, there's an encompassment of, of such diverse thoughts um, that I wanted to, you know, um, to to have a group, and and uh, so I, I started doing this recently. This is from Harborfront in April, and you have the the bundle of our best thoughts, <laughs> <laughs> and then the the uh, the pictorial sands. Oh, Tuscarora, <laughs> and then at the edge of the woods. So this uh, this photograph is where I grew up. This is where the actual um, yeah the the tree line where I grew up. So and the other thing is I just sold my father's property. I sold the title, and on Six Nations, um, which is you can only get like five grand a t uh, an acre. And it has the my family homestead on the the old house, but it's it's pretty run down. So there's a lot of, and 
we were talking about place. Well, be, just because I sold it, I know who I sold it to. It was a friend of my family's. And he's going to build a house for his grandkids. And um, it had just come to me from my sister. She signed it over recently last year. And But those trees, and it's still there. So I didn't have any qualms about actually selling the title. And uh, for some reason, um, I didn't have any... I knew that I could go back there. Now, mind you, we, you know, we, I, my family was separated when I was nine, so it was only the first nine years of my life that I was actually at that spot. And then my mother and I moved around like five or six times, including living with uh, Rick's grandmother for a while, for a couple months. So now I'm starting to look at the entire reserve in, in, in my work. And I'm going to all those different corners, like Martin's Corner, Beaver's Corners, you know, Silver Star, all those those temporally temporal spatial names that you know that were assigned to those to those corners based on who they were or who was there before, and and I'm starting to look at the entire area now. So it's taken me quite a while because in 1995 I started to look at basically where I you know, Six Nations. The the three acres where I grew up and then the f four acres where my grandfather and my father grew up. I started looking at, photographing those spaces. So so that's sort of in, you know, in the back of my mind too. But a lot of people, uh, you know, Bonnie and I had a quick, uh, we were talking briefly about selling the property and it was just, you know, on different reserves in Anishinaabe, there's a treaty. It's treaty land, so it's entirely entirely a different thing. That you know what what mm -hmm. what it's meant to sell the land mm -hmm. or sell the title. So, um, yeah, but I think the fact that I that I've been working, I continue and I want to work, continue to do all the things that I've shown you. But but what's what's interesting is the uh, is the actual. Um, this actual installation. And then recently there's like where images reflect upon themselves. So I'm, I'm looking at this particular image I just made recently. It's, it's the actual, you know, the tree has, was actually in one of those planters on University Ave and they took the planter away and they sawed the the roots off, but somehow I want to make it more three-dimensional, so I've been working, going to start working with that as well. Maybe the same thing happens to natives when you put them on a reserve. I think so, yeah, but it, there's all sorts of, you know, you're, I'm drawn to certain images like that because of a, there's a reason I'm drawn towards it, and I think if, if I do have a style, it's, it's that, you know, uh, that type of not necessarily melancholic, but you can see there's a there's a balance between melancholy and beauty, and and you're drawn to it. I think that's always been, you know, part of my repertoire was to to make as as good an image as possible. So. Of course, maybe your arts also made you to uh, to move on. Yeah, you can leave that that particular place behind. 
and realize the bigger place is still your place. And the bigger picture, which was the the not only the psychological narr the psychological narrative, but the the idea of place, and in that expanded, right. um, and and feeling. If you could go back to the that one, right? I began to think of this one as a series of islands that form our experience, and it's that. And I realized, actually, in my engagement with um, the Smithsonian's NMAI, that in in working with Native people who are not Haudenosaunee, um, that they have a very that the people I encountered have a very different understanding of their experience as Indigenous people. And the first thing that I had to encounter that I encountered was trying to establish a common a common vocabulary because I don't feel that they had a sense. Uh, so for this this piece reminded me in a sense the way that our territories are framed today, that there are these islands surrounded by a vast white space. And that these places for us are uh, these zones of um, an experience that we can't get outside of those places. And so we seek it, and, and yet in total, it makes up a larger space. And so, it's difficult for me to communicate the idea that it's an inverted world, that we live, most of us, in a Haudenosaunee world, that we then cross borders when necessary, but in the space that we're living, that's where we're living. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so, in a sense, this piece became a metaphor for that bigger space. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and I liked it because I like the I, I gravitate towards the geometric sensibility, mm -hmm. and maybe that's about this sort of like need for ordering. Yeah, that I find very calming in your work, and it's interesting that I have that experience. <laughs> that maybe it's a reflection on how chaotic sometimes I feel my own work is. That when I find work that is, in a sense, very structured, I immediately enjoy that, you know, mm -hmm. because everything else in my life I feel I have to sort out all the time. <laughs> well, it's a cultural behavior, too, to, of, of Haudenosaunee to have that order, to have that, uh, you know. To seek it. To yes. seek it. Yeah. No. Like preemptively, preemptive order, <laughs> I think you, you once mentioned. <laughs> so, hmm. Okay, just I just wanted to add too that, yeah, as as well those those spaces that we now that I now inhabit that that even that three acres that's where it, that's where I had to go back to, um, to have that safe space, but yeah, it's 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 all where all the memories are. It's the archive of memory yeah. there and belonging. Yeah. Yeah. So even though I grew up with a status card, and but was that three acres? That that was it. And then from that, I had relationships of when I came to Toronto and had relationships with the Anishinaabe elders. They accepted me. There was this this acceptance, and then I was ready to go back. And I photographed and met people who had this, on you know, who gave who gave uh, you know on. Uh, uh, 
um, non-judgmental acceptance. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I think that we have to accept that you know there's a contemporary indigenous cosmopolitanism that we have yet to express. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think we'll. Uh, We'll take some questions. If anybody has questions, comments. Yeah, if anyone does have questions, just raise your hand and we'll bring you a microphone. Here we go. Um, I have a question about the... Um, hi, thank you very much, everybody. Um, I have a question about the feedback loop piece, which I saw at Trinity and at Sakahan. But I, what struck me and which no one... maybe, Or maybe you could speak a little bit more about the way it's an open system. And so as you walk in the room... There's a you have an effect as you're viewing it. You have effect on the way that it um, it it's um, projected or it it responds to you to the viewer as well in the space. So I just wondered if you wanted to, if anybody wanted to sort well, of talk it, about that. Well, it had that effect Thanks. at Trinity because of the floor. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's it had that. It depended on you know because then the when you were walking on the floor, it was that was that old. Uh, those old wooden floors, so it would it would respond to you. So, yeah. But I'm also working on another another piece, which which will respond to people's presences. Uh, I have to go back to Banff next year and finish it with uh, Mark Bernier. And uh, but yeah, it's it's we're creating like an Arduino system of and having uh, sensors as well of. Uh, of having the viewer walk into a space and then have it affect uh, between two channels, actually, two different things. So. Any other questions? Thank you. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I was wondering if you could expand on the idea of light being an important metaphor in the Haudenosaunee culture. If you could just expand on the on the significance of it and, the, and of it as a metaphor. Of light. Well, the uh, the concept would be that um, you know there's a visible world and and then the unseen uh, world, and that uh, light, uh, firelight, uh, sunlight. Um, a flash of lightning, even the uh, light that, sh that bounces off a glass bead or a silver ornament, it creates uh, this threshold between the seen world and the unseen world. So just like fire transforms something and, and there's a moment where you can kind of see it and then it, it becomes something else. So I think that's why it's the uh, it is the metaphor for this fire that burns in us that makes us walk around, animates our bodies. And so when we fall, now it's tied to breath, light and breath to make uh, things. Uh, but it also remains um, kind of like coming into the light. So when he, he talks about this edge of the woods, it's uh, the darkness uh, where um, you know, thorny bushes are, where our minds are confused. And we come to the edge of that and we have to be transformed uh, to be able to exist in the clearing where, where the light of day shines. It just so happens you could say the clearing then is the space for where women uh, are with the children and the crops and the woods are where the men are uh, hunting and, and uh, tells you a lot about the differences between our people. 
put the threshold in the middle. So we use light to kind of bring people out of that uh, danger zone into the safe zone. So that's what it kind of represents. And in our wampum belts, which are white and purple, then white would represent uh, the continuity, uh, life, uh, good things, uh, peacefulness, and the darkness, and just the opposite. So that kind of the, the polarities that uh, Jolene talked about too, that the things are, it's always been that way. The world is a very di diverse thing. There's big dualities going on all the time. For every good medicine plant, there's a look-alike plant that looks like it, that if you don't know what you're doing, will be at your funeral shortly after you digest it. So you have to know well how to navigate between the lightness, the light world, and the dark world. It's not really a question, but I have a, an interest in this um, idea of diplomacy. And I heard at a, another art show uh, installation about wampum dis diplomacy. And I wondered about art as diplomacy and whether artists feel as diplomats. Like you feel your own art um, in some way communicates in a shared in a shared way that that um, would be seen as diplomatic or sharing of language. You should talk a little bit about the art gallery. I think I'm talking to Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I'll yeah. say something, and then Jolene can correct feel, me. Do you yeah. feel like a Do you feel like a diplomat? Uh, yeah, uh, I have the burden of information. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we talk about loaded words, I mean, diplomat. Yeah. Think about diplomat in the modern world. It's one who twists the truth so you think you know what they're talking about. Oh no, excuse me, that's a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> or is an art agent. I forget, I forget. Anyway, it's all this twisting. So um, many years ago, I would have said yes, that artists represent this folks who, for whether we like it or not, have a uh, dual audience for their work and have to navigate between those, uh, those uh, audiences. We have to have, be able to do art speak as well as uh, community speak. Sometimes we have to help our own community understand what's going on in the art world because uh, our communities used to be kind of conservative. But I did get annoyed when uh, the issues broke out at Douglas uh, Creek and this big fight going on. And all of a sudden there was this art exhibit in a, in a little town by native artists, none of who were down there at the site. And I kind of got thinking about, well, what do they know about what happened? And kind of like, well, who are they to talk about the people who got, uh, who, who got thrown to the ground? And where were they when it come time to stand up for the defense of the land? So I'd start thinking, to be fair, not diplomats, but press agents. <laughs> so we've got this activity going on. They're the spin doctors who help people, but the problem is the art gallery is such a neutral, safe place as compared to being in parliament, talking to the, to the politicians or trying to talk to the diplomats about our Haudenosaunee passport, you know, so we have to, so I get a little annoyed by all of that and saying, how come you're not here doing that? And I, cause I guarantee your art would even be more engaging 
but don't use community conflict to advance your art career. I guess that's what I was kind of feeling about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't really see myself as a diplomat. I never have. I'm just more, I've always tried to communicate on a human level and in terms of sharing these concepts and sharing these ideas. I mean, you know, the two, the two major ones in, in being Haudenosaunee is elevating each other's minds and thanksgiving. And, you know, and sharing itself, as I said before, comes from compassion. So that's what, that's my main motivation. I grew up around a lot of older people when I was younger. And I learned a certain way to be and a certain way of how knowledge was, was um, communicated of listening and, and, and observing and witnessing and participating. And um, so, you know, I, I learned how to, to communicate on that. And, and, you know, sometimes I'm overly formal with that. And sometimes I'll just say, you know, well, Google it, you know. <laughs> but, you know, that's what I was saying about the, the burden of information. I'm always open, though, to talk about these concepts. There's no, you know, because there's a lot of people who would ask me, or even when I'm here, my door is open most of the time, and people can come and ask me these questions without feeling any uh, uncomfortable feelings or whatever. It's just that, no, here's, this is what it is, and, and you know, these, let's share. You know, so. I guess I would answer it in this way, that as uh, Tuscarora and then, you know, part of the Haudenosaunee, that we have, um, I think, uh, a great luxury in that I wouldn't use the term diplomat to talk about the work because we actually have other cultural signifiers that occupy that space. And so, you know, this work is actually operating much more as a philosophical text. And so it's demanding a different kind of interaction, uh, but interaction nonetheless. And so I think that that might be um, the thing that I think about is that, uh, you know, we have uh, lots of different registers of this interaction and sometimes the language that is used to express these ideas as it relates to art in general just like evaporates when it's applied to indigenous or art that is acknowledging itself as coming from an indigenous frame because the overt tendency is to only want to recognize this work in a very narrow uh, band uh, which is about that, um, that more governmental exchange. And, and I would argue that there's a, there, this kind of work is actually trying to have an exchange on a different level. On the other hand, sometimes I find him very diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> I have a... I'm just wondering, different Aboriginal communities that you've all exhibited in across Canada and U.S. and other parts, I'm wondering today what the connection to, to art in general is within Indigenous communities, whether you have to bring the art to people or get people out to the art, or whether there's 
basically what, what the response is and, and how much it's uh, part of the communities. <laughs> well, it's been my experience that since the since exhibiting since '89, that in back in the '90s, I would always have my exhibitions at either at you know uh, UBC uh, or uh, regional art galleries or artist-run centers, but I would still have to go. I would personally go to the territories, go to the Native Center talk to people and encourage them to come to those spaces. Um, so, and it's still like that. I'm still having, I still do that. I don't mind doing that. I, li I like making contacts that way, but it's still, there's still a, uh, a you know, uh, a problem getting uh, of representation within those uh, regional galleries or some artist-run centers. Now it's changing, of course. Um, more work is being shown, um, but still there is, you know, there's an outreach problem, for sure. That it's a constant, it's a constant thing, you know. Um, I had an exhibition at, on uh, at with the Woodland Center, for example, and it was, and and uh, it was a bit problematic getting people out. Some people came. Now the Woodland Center, I have to tell you, is is also very problematic <laughs> in itself because it was the former residential school in uh, southern Ontario, run by the Anglicans. So the fact that the museum is part of that, it's it's always had its uh, you know. But no, there's you know, there, I I have a constant um, philosophy of of going out and. and doing outreach. You know, it's a tough matter, and I think that's one reason why I kind of quit the museum field, is that uh, we spend all of this money presenting the best, uh, however you define that, that our people have done. It never gets seen by the communities where they're from. Our young people don't grow up uh, experiencing this kind of art. So I thought, I saw the art gallery and the art exhibition, and perhaps even the art studio, as another form of colonization, reaching in grabbing this great creativity and exporting it out to where then people argue about whether it's real art or not. And so uh, we've been trying to encourage it. But because of what I said earlier, some of our communities are so conservative about their notions of art. I tell you, if I see another end of the trail on a piece of native art, I'm going to puke right on it. I just <laughs> <laughs> so it's a tough job sometimes to get the the minds of our own people open up enough to realize there is a part of them in this artwork and in the contemporary work. And uh, we did this art summer camp back on the reserve and uh, we brought a bunch of young kids, I think sixth and seventh graders, brought them here to OCAD and brought them here because we were trying to say that uh, we had did all this meaningful artwork, you know, from beadwork to painting and sculpture, but we also wanted you to just come and see uh, natives as professional artists, artists in training and see this stuff there. So uh, yesterday, uh, my little girl, who's uh, nine, uh, said, uh, Dad, uh, would you mind if I went to OCAD when I go to the university? And I said, no, I would like that very much. She <coughs> says, well, you're an artist. My mother's an artist. I should be an artist. And she says, I'm good at it. And um, <laughs> because I also know if she doesn't come here to do that, her chances of exploring and producing things, uh, this, this big philosophical uh, issue are going to be a little hard put. So I have a love-hate relationship with the institutions because we need them to foster this growth, uh, 
experience other forms of art, other people, other <coughs> ways of knowing, which will hopefully fuel our art, <coughs> versus I wish our own people could grow up seeing this great art being produced by, uh, by people. Uh, I think that would encourage them even more. Agreed. You know what? Um, I'm going to have to not stop the evening, but just pause it now to thank Jolene and Rick and Greg for your insights and for continuing this conversation with us. And before we burst into applause, to thank them. For those of you who might have come in later, we have an opportunity now to go up into the galleries to see Greg's work. And because the galleries are closed, we need to do it all in one large group. So. Um, after we thank them, we'll, we'll head directly up there. So now's the moment. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.